Wednesday, July 28th. No, that's not right. It's August 4th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 353. Well, I'm hoping, Jeff, that I got your uh, audio working because I kind of forgot to do that. But uh, yeah, welcome, Jeff Young. How's it going, brother? It's, it's going awesome, man. Glad to be here. Right on, right on. I actually do have your audio plugged in, which is great. Uh, for those who don't know, well, let me introduce my friend Jeff, and then I'll let him introduce himself. Jeff and I have done several shows together on Growing a Messiah, which is uh, the website that my wife and I started several years ago. And the last one we did was on denominationalism, which you can find on the Growing in Messiah YouTube channel. And uh, it got some good response. We got some good feedback from that. And uh, Rob is off working on his house. He's, uh, I don't know, putting in a toilet or something like that. And uh, so I thought, well, hey, why don't we bring on uh, my good friend Jeff and uh, we'll see if we can, you know, talk about some stuff. So, Jeff, tell everyone who you are, what you do. And uh, yeah, fill in the gaps for everybody. For sure. Um, so, yeah, so I'm Jeff Young. Uh I have been uh, pastoring Nehemiah Restoration Fellowship now for the last uh, about a year and a half now. Uh, see, we started as a plant probably about two and a half years ago, and uh, we went through uh, just kind of establishing ourselves as a, as a congregation and uh, went through getting up an uh, ordination process in place. And uh, anyway, so I went through the ordination process. I'm also currently... Uh, getting a degree in biblical and theological studies, um, got a, a, a serious interest in scholarship, as I think people that are coming into the pro-law movement should be uh, interested in and in, in establishing kind of our, our doctrinal position. And so, um, yeah, so currently I'm, I'm writing papers and stuff and uh, doing all kinds of cool researchy type things and yeah, and, Jeff uh, yeah. was Jeff was telling me his workload before we came on. He's taking you're, you're taking three classes per at a time, basically, right? So three classes per subterm. So I'm technically taking six classes per semester. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, many people will probably know that uh, Jeff's claim to fame without knowing that it's actually Jeff. Jeff is the one who coined the phrase, although it was probably somewhat obvious, he is the one who coined the phrase pronomian. And pronomian just simply means pro-law and is a response to the term antinomian. I shouldn't say response. It's the counterpart to antinomian, which was which was yeah. uh, first coined by Luther. Um, do you want to talk at all about that or have we beaten that uh, with, a, with a stick? I mean, I don't know. We can talk about it. I mean, you did a really good video on it, I think. Oh, thank and, you. And uh, I've had, yeah. Well, actually, somebody said recently they said that uh, they felt like their all their questions had kind of been answered within that video. So I think that, um, yeah, I think that if they're interested, I think they should go check out Jim. Thank you. Jim, growing, yes. whatever whatever Jim. the acrostic is. Yeah, growing a messiah. <laughs> actually, so you and I did a video on that as well. We did a video on pronomian. Kind of like after yeah. the fact, talking about some of the things that I got wrong, <laughs> which is easy to do. But basically, <laughs> yeah, Jeff yeah, came yeah. in and said, no, pronomian can be a term. And this is true. Pronomian can be a term for anyone who believes that the law is in act. And then you simply just have to add other things onto it. Right. And that's where we yeah. that's where we talked about denominationalism. We talked about because ultimately we lean towards different denominations, which is also interesting. 
Jeff and I disagree mm-hmm. on things, which is always fun. And yeah, for those who have heard Rob and I talk about the ETS and SBL, Jeff is going to the SBL for the very first time this year. That is going to yep. be a grand finale. It'll, it'll just be grand all around. It'll just yeah, be grand. it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Down in Texas. So we'll be on the uh, river walk, uh, walking around rubbing shoulders with scholars and I don't know oh, eating yeah. eating good food. I'm going to be I'm going to be fanboying hard, man. These guys are going to think <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. These guys are going to think like who is this guy? <laughs> who would they who would they let in here? Right. Yeah, I remember I think was it 2 years ago I saw Daniel Block and every time I see Block I kind of I kind of get a little little fanboyish. There's a couple of guys. Oh, yeah, and I'm man. just I'm like, be like, will you sign my Daniel Block poster? And they'd be like, there's a Daniel Block poster. And I'd be like, yes, I made it. <laughs> I have a, I have a, I have a ca- cardboard cutout of you that I created myself. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Unashamed of Jesus asks, what is denomination? Denomination is the uh, group of a group of churches and or belief structures that are put under one title. So, for instance, the Southern Baptist Convention would be a denomination. Uh, what's a Presbyterian denomination, Jeff? Oh, uh, so a Presbyterian denomination, like, are you asking what is it exactly as far as, like, what's the defining features of a Presbyterian denomination? No, 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 just, like, give me a denom- give me a Presbyterian denomination. Let's see here, you have uh, oh, 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 United okay. Methodist. Uh, P- PCA. Uh, yeah, there you Presbyterian, go. Presbyterian, yeah. Yeah, the PCA. So yeah. Those, those are, that. that's, when you... You get a lot of churches these days that would say we're non-denominational, uh, which yeah. is basically saying that uh, we don't subscribe to a specific denomination. Someone in the yeah. chat room, Sean, says Jeff's Presbyterian. Uh, yeah, leaning Presbyterian, right? Yeah, I'd say I lean. I, I definitely lean that way. I find myself oftentimes when I'm looking at certain theologies, uh, I mean, I think anybody that shoehorns themselves into just like believing everything one denomination believes is can be problematic. But I'd say that if if I, there's some there's much more overlap, I think, with the Presbyterians and my belief system than maybe other denominations that that exist out there. So unashamed of Jesus says, I know what denomination is. What denomination is Jeff? OK, I think we just answered. that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. OK, yeah, so I'm I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a member of like so like to be clear, I'm not a member of the Presbyterian. So I I currently am a pastor at a messianic assembly. Now, there's some developing things that are coming down the pike and I can say it. I mean, I, I've already I've already said it publicly at our fellowship in, in one of our sermons that I'm actually gonna be moving um out of Tennessee. I live in Tennessee, that's where I pastor at, and I'll be moving to Oklahoma uh, in the next few months. And so uh, I don't know that the next place that I pastor will be Messianic. Um, I'm not exactly, if if I do pastor again, I'm not sure what the denomination will be, if it is a part of a denomination. But that said, um, yeah, so I'm not, to be clear, I, I would say I lean Presbyterian, but I, I'm not myself um, a member of any Presbyterian denomination. That's like me. So. I say that I lean Baptist, although the church that I pastor is currently a non-denominational Christian church. Yeah. So, um, but I haven't brought out the 1689 Baptist Confession yet and, and had everybody go through it because then everybody would probably be like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, we're probably closer to bat. Anyway, okay, let's yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. let's jump into some fun. 
Uh, we have a couple of uh, audio clips that were actually before we do that. Let's just bring this up. Uh, and we had somebody ask for our phone jingle. So here it is. Our comment line is Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253 Brought to you by fans themselves, 253-465-3205. You don't talk to us, you just talk to a message machine. Tell us how much you love us, hate us. Agree, disagree, whatever, it doesn't matter. You can also send us email, chag at torahresource.com. It's chag at torahresource.com. Don't forget that this show is produced by Torah Resource. You can go to torahresource.com and find all sorts of different things, including free or paid for or whatever. We also have a digital library. It's $100 a year. That's less than $10 a month. And for that, you can have access to all of our digital products, uh, thousands of hours of audio and video from my father and others, and uh, PDFs of all of the books and so on and so forth. You can also listen to all of the archives of the Messiah Matters show on Messiah Matters. Dot com. Okay, finally, don't forget to subscribe, like, and share this video because, you know, sharing is caring, that kind of thing. Okay, um, let's go to some phone conversations here. We got this one, and uh, yeah, let's just listen to it. It was in discussion today, and it was about faith. And prior to Messiah, if I am a uh, practicing um, Israelite, I have faith in the sacrifices. I guess this is my question. I have faith in the sacrifices like Yom Kippur, that my atonement will be made and that I will have salvation. Okay, hang on just a second. I want to stop right here. So uh, the idea <clears throat> of having faith in sacrifices, I don't think that this is actually what the Bible teaches or what Israel was supposed to do. Maybe that's what they did. They might have believed that their sacrifices saved them, right? But ultimately... Why would God then say, stop bringing your stinking sacrifices? And he says this on numerous occasions. He says it in Isaiah. He says it in the Psalms, right? And then it's reemphasized um, in the apostolic scriptures. So I, your thoughts, what are your thoughts, Jeff? I, I, I would reject the idea that, that, I mean, obviously God did not intend for them to have, to, to have faith in the sacrifices themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, so kind of when we were discussing this before, and I've had people bring this up because I do think it creates a lot of confusion as far as the purpose of the sacrifices, really the purpose of the law. And I think that's where Paul does such tremendous, like that's where he's spending so much of his letters just trying to put the law in its proper framework because it had been elevated in a way within the first century that was not it's and th this kind of understanding i think this like, like highlights maybe the misunderstanding of what the purpose of the law was and that you know the whole point of it when paul mentions that um abraham believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness right it's it's not faith in the sacrifices per specifically that uh create make, make one righteous it's it's faith in the progressive revelation of god OK, so and what I mean by that is that at the time that Abraham had been given what he had been given, the promise that was given to Abraham, Abraham believed that. Right. He had believed what had been had been given to him. But ultimately, the he, issue is, but, but, but ultimately he believes he believes the seed. Right. He believes that the seed is going to come and he, he believes the progressive revelation of the seed. In other words, in Genesis yes. three is where the seed is promised to to. Well, technically, the seed is promised to the serpent almost, but it's actually right because 
God's speaking to the serpent and says, and the seed of the woman will come and, and crush the head of the serpent, so on and so forth. But then we see the progression of this down to Abraham, and he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is where Abraham has faith. So it's actually, I mean, yes, I agree with you that it's in the progressive revelation of the seed, but I would disagree in the idea that it's just God's progressive revelation in general. It's actually specific progressive revelation. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And I think that... Well, yeah. So, I mean, like the thing you have to to deal with, though, is, you know, when you have early Israelites, like like because I think the heart of the question that this guy is getting at and I think it's a question a lot of people have is is like, what was it that made someone righteous? What justified somebody before God prior to the knowledge of Messiah? Was it just like and this is kind of where we talked about a covenant of works. Um, It's this idea that, well, they did these things. And these things were the things that justified them before God. And I, I do have issue with that, the idea that like that to me seems very akin to like a, a form of dispensationalism, right? The idea that, well, they 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 did this works thing and that's what justified them before God here. And then we get to the New Testament, we get to the time of Yeshua, we get to the time of the apostles, and now they're justified this other way. And I think that the the issue that you have there with that is that there's over and over God took away sacrifices, right? right? So like when they went into captivity, there weren't, you couldn't even do sacrifices. So what did they do then? Right. And so I think that it's the, it's the, that these were symbols. Yeah. That pointed to the Messiah, but it wasn't faith in the symbols. It was, it was that God had been revealed his character, had revealed his plan and purposes to the Israelites in different phases throughout hit throughout Israelite history. And it was the faith in the purpose and plan kind of, and I guess we're kind of saying the same thing here. Like it was that faith in that purpose and plan as it progressed in the revelation, that was what made them righteous before God, right? Well, Noah Abraham, believed what God had said. Abraham longed to see my day and he saw it, right? Let's listen to the rest of this phone, yes. this phone message. That my atonement will be made and that I will have salvation through that sacrifices of the temple? Or do I have faith in my own works? Like, I'm a good person, I'm following the law of God, and therefore I am saved. And I think that the church, like when you have these conversations in the church, that it's, I'm not really sure what, they generally focus on the second one. But I guess I, I want you guys to parse that, or even maybe even address the idea here that I'm bringing up, is that even even at that time, there was faith. I mean, you still had to have a belief in the atonement or the sacrifices were in fact doing something. So I see no difference in what was being done in the past and what is done today. Okay, okay. so lots going on here, and there's a lot, a lot of different directions we could go. The first thing I want to say is that I don't think that faith in the in the sacrifices is what saved people. In fact, I think that one of the mm-hmm. reasons that Israel continues to get go wayward, right, even into our modern mm-hmm. day, is this idea that something that I do is going to save me. In other words, it's faith that saves us. It's not some kind of work. At the same time, I think this also brings in the idea of the new perspective on Paul, which is I don't think that the Jews necessarily believed that if I do all these works, I'm in. I think rather the first century belief from in within Judaism was more to the idea of I'm in because I'm Jewish. And now to stay in, I got to mm-hmm. keep the covenant. Are you, I mean, yeah, it was, 
Yeah, it was ans- they, they believed in something called ancestral kinship. It was the idea that ancestral kinship was what justified you before God, that you went through, and that, that's why they emphasized, that was why the big controversy in Acts 15, the things kind of came to that head, was because they weren't just teach like people have this idea that like they were just teaching, and this is a common argument against the law, that what was being taught at the time was, well, you're justified through works. And that was all that was that's not that's not all that was happening, right? right? What was happening was they were saying, no, you have to become Jewish. You have to go undergo three different rituals that we just encompass under the word conversion, right? And these are the things that bring you into um, the Abrahamic family. You have to become Jewish. You have to convert to right. become a Jew. And, uh, and Paul's and do so these things. against You can't it. be justified until then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Paul's saying like, it. no, no, that's the, that's not the point of these laws. That was right. never the point of these laws. Right. And, and so, but there was something he said in that thing, that thing that I think is worth addressing. And that was faith that the sacrifices were actually doing something. And, um, the issue I think you have that like, I, I hold the position that the sacrifices have always been symbolic, right? They've never right. actually had some kind of, uh, they're not effectual in uh, creating justification before God and creating Absolutely. redemption and all of these things. They were they were placeholders. They were symbolic for uh, the ultimate manifestation of what they represented for their time, and that was that was Christ. Right. It was Yeshua. And, and it, it's actually Hebrews 10, 4. I think it's worth reading because it's again, it kind of speaks to what he had said there. And that is I have to grab my glasses here. OK, uh, Hebrews 10, 4. Um, uh, for uh, otherwise, they would not have ceased, I guess, in verse one, starting in verse one for the law, since it has, has only shadow of the good things to come and not the form those of those things itself can never be the same or can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually every year make those who approach perfect. Otherwise, it would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, and then he goes on to, to say a prophecy. But the point is, is that like, that this is why I think that it's a really good argument for the festivals still are in effect, because... People say, well, that was their way of justification then. Well, it's like, no, it never was. It was always symbolic, right? It always was symbolic. So if we can do something like communion as sort of a symbol of our worship to the Lord, right? If we can do that as, um, oh man, the word's escaping me, as a, uh, I just gave a sermon. Memorial, I can't a memorial of, or a, a yeah, picture of, yeah. A sacrament. That's what okay. I'm looking for. Yes. Yeah. If we can do the communion as sort of like a sacrament, um, and if we can do baptism as a symbol, then there's no reason we can't do festivals as a symbol, right? There, there's or, nothing that b- would bar us from that. Or marriage, right? Marriage is a shadow of of what Christ has with the ecclesia, with the church, right? So, yeah. So the exactly. idea that we would have a a shadow of something, shadows are good things. Uh, they're not. Yeah. They're not bad things. Um. Yeah, you. Yeah, they don't know. They're they're not an argument against the law. That's I, I've never understood that as a as a uh, as a as a good argument against it. It seems counterintuitive to what the New Test the other shadows the New Testament uses to affirm the the character of of Messiah. So I think we need to give a little bit of credit where credit is due, though. Good scholars within Christianity, even those who say that the that these uh, that the festivals 
are done away with. Good scholars will tell you that people have always been saved in the same way. They, you know, a good teacher, a good pastor is not going to tell you that someone was saved by keeping the law before Christ came. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree a good scholar would say that, but I'd say (laughs) there probably are scholars that don't say that. Um, Fair. Yeah. All I'm saying is that the church that I grew up in, which was a which was a standard non-denominational Christian church, you know, those those pastors there and they had a large staff of pastors, even for 600 people. Um, Those pastors would never have said that that the law saved a person. In fact, they would say that the law didn't right. save a person, which is why, why Abraham's faith is what saved him. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So, um, do we want to talk more about that, or are we are we pretty much good on that? In terms of, you know, what's I the, think what's the chat saying? What does the chat say? Well, they're kind of all over the place. I mean, they're very on topic, but they're. Uh, let's see here. Okay. Thoughts on Deuteronomy 6.5, and will it be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us? Yeah, I think that this idea of the commandments being righteousness for us, I I have no problem with that, but we find our righteousness in in faith first, right? In other words, the the works that we do that we find righteous, that are seen as righteousness, are are the visible outworking of the faith that has already saved. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, the idea. Yeah, I, I think you're you're right. the The idea that the works themselves actually save us, I I don't have. Uh, I mean, the the scriptures continue yeah. to tell us that that's not the case. The fact that the fact that within the law itself, I mean, and I, and I understand their point here that the, those who live by them, um, you know, these these are the people that are going to be righteous. But you have to understand, like. Within the law itself, it talks about circumcision of the heart, right? And he right. tells them to circumcise their hearts. And so, like, what God wasn't saying in Scripture quite clearly, because he was telling them that they needed to circumcise their hearts, what he wasn't saying was, if you do these things, then uh, are these things in and of themselves represent somebody who is – uh, who's in the faith, right? It's it's that it's a circumcision of the heart in which these things sort of flow out of that. And again, that's encompassed within the theology of Deuteronomy, per se, right? It's like that there is a heart aspect in which that God recognized that Shema Israel, right? Like, hear what I'm saying. Like, listen, believe me, heed what I'm saying. Like, there's a there's an aspect in which there's a genuine belief in what God has, is telling them. And, um, and so, yeah, so this is where it gets tricky. Cause you're like, well, is it faith or is it works? Well, it's faith producing works. And right. it's like, you, you, they're, they're not mutually exclusive to one another. It's like the, whoever said this, yeah, whoever does these things, they will be declared righteous, but they're doing them because of the heart right. that was sort of pre-existing there. Yeah. And Rob and I have talked before about the term faith and faithfulness or, uh, allegiance, right? Like the idea of allegiance and faith, how those work together and same kind of word, right? I mean, we, we don't have a yeah. word for faithfulness. We just have a word for faith, but it's put into that form. Um, so anyway, okay. Uh, shall we move on? Uh, sure. in my view, salvation is God's grace, mercy, and love as seen in the Exodus to me, not because of our righteousness, but because of him. True. Yeah, so we can't just take that one part out and keep the commands. Yeah, the the idea that, uh, and this is ultimately what Israel is doing today, right? 
well, I shouldn't say Israel. This is what a very small portion of the of Israel is doing today. In other words, yeah. you know, you have your you have your Orthodox Jews who say, "Well, we're going to keep the law. We're going to keep it perfect." They've added all these extra laws to make sure that they don't actually break one of the laws that is in the Torah. Yet they are still blind and deaf when it comes to the truth of the of the word because they they are blind and deaf to the Messiah. And so, what good is their works? Their works are nothing. Yeah. And this is ultimately the I mean, this is the tragedy of of the modern state of Israel is that you have two different you have the majority of the modern state of Israel, which is not religious at all and or going down the path of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then you have the other uh, not as big sliver of the modern state of Israel that is um, is, you know, maybe Orthodox Jewish or ascribed to some form of Judaism. And then you have a very small remnant that actually believe in Christ. And it's that, I mean, yeah. we take, we take hope in the, in the remnant because obviously the promise is that God will preserve the remnant and that we will all be, you know, that we will attach to the remnant. So the promises are, are kept true. There's no doubt about it, but anyway, okay, let's move on. My good friend, Daniel left us a, uh, that one's already done. My good friend Daniel left us a audio message. Listen, listen. Hey, Robin, Caleb. Uh, this is Daniel, one of your 36 listeners. Hey, I had a question about your, uh, your I should say, the Bible's stance on cremation. Uh, I've seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of people being cremated lately, and I wanted to know, Christian tradition, I think, shows that cremation is just not something that we should be doing. Um, Yeshua, Jesus, was not cremated. He was buried and, and obviously uh, came back to life. What is the biblical stance on cremation versus burial? Okay, this is a good question. Um, I'm going to pass this over to Jeff because Jeff is in a few, in a few seconds. Hang on. I, I, do have okay. I do have comments on this. I'm going to pass this over to you in a yeah. few seconds, though, because you uh, looked into the Christian stance on on uh, cremation. I looked at yeah. first. I looked at the Torah commands on uh, burning, and so there's two places that I could find in the Torah where God prescribes burning someone. Uh, the first one is in Leviticus 20 verse 14. It says, "If there is a man who marries a woman and her mother, it is immor immorality. Both he and they shall be burned with fire, so that there will be no immorality in your midst." And then Leviticus 21.9, just a chapter later, he says, Also the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. So it's seen as like the mm -hmm. the worst form of death, basically. In To me, it seems like the worst form of death in the Torah. It seems like people who are like utterly sexually immoral are the ones who are burned. And uh, this and other reasons is one of the is one of the main reasons that Judaism has always said that uh, that burning a body should not be done um, beyond this. And I think this is actually kind of the salt in the wound of the Holocaust. It's like the wound of the Holocaust is made even worse by the fact that so many people were cremated instead of being being buried. Now, I do know mm -hmm. that that Judaism is has laxed on this recently. Tell me why Christianity has for so long gone against, which which was news to me, by the way, has gone against uh, cremation. Yeah. <clears throat> 
So the reason it actually started really early on, I don't know the exact date of when it came about, when it emerged, but um, I know that by 789 AD, it was actually, you could actually, I think in Spain, you could be punished by death uh, for, for cremating somebody. And uh, it, so it was like a very early uh, belief and tradition, and, and it was largely in the Catholic Church. And, and then you kind of see, as with a lot of the things, the vestiges of that belief sort of trickle down into Protestantism. And um, it's really simple, and it makes a lot of sense, to be perfectly honest, why they believed that. Um, it was funny. we were t When you had brought this up as like a subject, it, I had just – I was telling you, I was watching a show – a television show the other day and uh, I was in the show they were cremating this guy's son's body he's like you know the bible says that a, a man who, who <laughs> cremates his son he can't be in the resurrection and I was like what on? and I, that struck me as weird I was like where does the bible say that I immediately like paused the show like when it's like started trying to look it up like what could he be referring to here but yeah it comes out of the Christian tradition and a lot of that is um because early Christians believed, I mean, you do see throughout the scripture, like everybody was buried, basically, right? Like throughout the scripture, Yeshua was buried, Joseph was buried, in his, and there was a belief enough that he wanted his bones moved to Israel, right? Or to the, to the land in which they were going, right? So they took, they took his, his, his remains with them. And um, so, you know, I, I mean, the, it... It's the belief that because they believed in a resurrection, that it was it was the idea that they wanted to have something to be resurrected. I mean, that is, is about as simple as it gets. I mean, when you because of we kind of recognize that the early church, they kind of believed for a long time. And a lot of Christians have believed, I guess, in every generation that any minute now the Messiah was going to come back. And so it's like, well, we got to have our bodies here because he's going to have to he's going to resurrect our bodies. Then they've got to be here to be resurrected. But did they attach? So did, did they attach that belief to any scripture, or was it just a no. general view? It was just well, I mean, it was uh, it was like a view that the pagans had, and they're like, well, the pagans are doing this thing, and we're not going to do what they're doing, and we believe that we're going to come back to life, so we've got to keep these bodies intact, or at least here, so that there's something to bring bring back. You know, and so they thought like this is going to happen any day, like any day the, the Messiah is going to come back and we're going to come back to life. So I want my body to be here. And it, and it I mean, obviously, as we see with like ancient people, sometimes like superstition kicks in. And but that said, um, I think it is I think there's actually an argument to be made after I've uh, as I've looked into it for maybe why we shouldn't do cremation. And it's not because the pagans did it. And it's certainly not because. God couldn't reanimate, like couldn't get you a new body. I mean, like after a hundred years, it's gone there's nothing anyway. left but yeah. teeth anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're, it's, it's just teeth. You're just a set of teeth after that. And so, <laughs> and, uh, and so like, it doesn't matter one way or the other. I mean, everybody that's ever lived, um, they're, they're, they're as gone as, as cremation would have, have gotten them. But it is that they were so committed to the idea of a resurrection that it was almost in some ways a it was a commitment to that belief you know it was a commitment to the belief that they would be resurrected that these bodies would come forth and so they didn't want to burn it because they had respect for the bodies that god had made them and i think that's another argument john piper actually makes an argument against cremation that he says that we should treat the human body with care 
and respect and dignity. And so he doesn't feel like cremation represents that. And, you know, so, you know, as a pastor, the first thing I always tell people is if you've cremated your, a family member and they were a believer, um, they're going to be in the resurrection. I mean, just period. Like the, God, I mean, there, there's just, th- that is not even a factor here. So like it, it puts to at least at ease the people that have questions about that. Like, <laughs> right. Like you're not just gone. Right. And, um, the second thing would be is, um, but if we're trying to do things that are symbolic, that kind of point to the picture that we believe in, then I think there's a good case for burial as as the optimal choice. But it's, again, it, it seems to me that we have I mean, within the within the Torah itself, the idea of burning a body is never seen in a good light. Right. So the two passages that I shared yeah. seem to be attached to sexual like gross sexual immorality. And then also we see like prohibitions against people who burn their children to Moloch, right? So the idea of <clears throat> burning a body was like you would do that for a false god. You would burn a child for a false god. And so like yeah. there's no there's nowhere like burning a body is seen as like, oh, well, it's not that big of a deal or anything like that. It's It's always in this idea of like, yikes, you know, like you don't want that kind of a thing now obviously the Mm, burning the burning of the body of like the the priest's daughter who uh, becomes a prostitute presumably a a temple prostitute but neither here nor there um obviously they're burned alive right and we see this actually we see this also within the uh within the reformation you know they they hang they strangle or what who was it who did they strangle they strangled somebody and then they then they was it Knox? Anyway, they uh, they strangle him and then they they bear they unbury his body later and then they burn him again, or like they burn him. So it's yeah. like this is like the worst of the worst. If you're get like if if you burn a body, it's like it's always been seen as this. You just don't do that. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and and that's a good point. Like you've got people that have been martyred by burning. So the thing is, is like if they if they couldn't be resurrected, it's like, well, these people had no control over it. Like, I guess it's just it's what it is. You're you know, or what people that were devoured by lions, you know, in uh, the early church. Right. It's like, you know, so like the idea that the God won't resurrect, won't resurrect a body that has been either consumed or burned to ash or whatever. And I get it like what you just said is a perfect example. You're right. Like there was an, I, there was a bit of a, the fact that Joseph wanted his bones moved. Why? Right. Why would he want his bones to be moved to where his, uh, where his descendants would be, right? It's 400 years later. I mean, what, what, what was now likely he was in it. He, because he was a, uh, um, he was in Egypt. It's possible he was mummified. Right. But like, Right. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? But they, they have found a tomb that they think belonged to Joseph. Um, and so and it's empty. So and it seems like he might have been mummified there. And so if they moved him, then, uh, you know, I think the idea the idea they had back then is that, yeah, you're if you were going to be resurrected, if you were going to be brought to life again, that you wanted something you wanted to be resurrected in the land of your descendants. <laughs> Right. So they had that belief. They, they were committed to that historically. Now, I think that's more descriptive of their beliefs rather than 
prescriptive of what is the case. But Brandon in the chat room says it was Tyndale. No, Tyndale was strangled first, and that, but he was strangled prior to his burning, and they were going to burn him. It was Wycliffe, or Wycliffe, however you want to say it, who was actually dug up. He was buried, and then he was dug up, and they burned his bones for translating the Bible. Um, yeah. Tyndale was where my mind went first, too, because uh, as the story goes, Tyndale actually woke up like they were supposed to strangle him so that he didn't feel the flames like they were going to spare him feeling the frames and flames and then they were going to burn him. But the guy who strangled him didn't do a good enough job and he woke up right when he was like right when the flames were lit. So he. Yeah. Right. Anyway. okay, let's go to something a little bit more controversial. So. Jeff and I, <laughs> yeah, Jeff, yeah. Okay. Jeff and I share a share a uh, belief in. Uh, well, you call it complementarianism, as do I. This is where you've really gotten into some trouble recently. Um, mm. And when I say trouble, I mean uh, there have been people online that have really, uh, really pushed against your stance against egalitarianism. Now I'm going to break down these these terms for everyone who is unaware. Um, but Jeff has taken a, a strong stance on uh, complementarianism. I, ha- I too, have taken a sh- very strong stance on complementarianism, if we want to call it that. Uh, the guys over at uh, It Is Good to Be a Man, call they, they've come up with a different term called gendered piety. I tend to like their explanation of that, although I get both terms. Um, so they actually they actually think call it like. I think gender piety is the overall doctrinal view with regard to both men and women. But when they're referring to men, they call it patriarchalism. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, and so basically, the I see one of the biggest downfalls of the church, of the modern church today, is, and even the conservative modern church, like the Southern Baptist Convention. And this is why Rob and I talked about this a little bit when the the, the woes that are happening at the at the at SBC. Um, the I see one of the biggest issues, uh, the idea that that uh, women can be elders. And one of the reasons I see that is because I think that this is the place that the Trojan horse comes in. And um, I, I, I think and we'll talk about the hermeneutic that is used to bring this in. Um, but I think that ultimately what happens is the hermeneutic that is used to to uh, say that women can be elders is the same hermeneutic that has led the LGBTQ movement to be able to say, well, we believe that, uh, you know, uh, homosexuals should be not only members of the church, but also should be, also should be elders of the church. Now, I have started writing yep. a series on this. In fact, I, I posted, um, I think, the first one to the public. I post, posted just this last Tuesday on Growing a Messiah um, on roles within uh, God's structure for both home and and church um you can go check that out if you'd like to but you also jeff have started writing on this and uh have gotten some major pushback talk to me a little bit about not only your stance but also the hermeneutic that you believe is used to bring this in and why it's such a dangerous hermeneutic and go okay um yeah so i want to say something uh to kind of qualify something you had said there a little bit, because I think that there's a bit of a, there can be a bit of a misunderstanding when you say that the hermeneutic that's used to get from, uh, to get to egalitarianism is the same that LGBTQ LGT them peoples, um, <laughs> use <laughs> yep. them folk out there. Now the LG 
BTQ. LGBTQ community. Yeah, there we go. Community uses to uh, get to their doctrinal position. You're not saying, and I mean, I'm not certainly not saying either, that uh, people that believe in egalitarianism will eventually believe in the other. Now, maybe they do, but maybe they don't. That's not the point. The point is, is that the way that they arrived at their conclusion is the same way. Now, you can use that same methodology inconsistently, right? But uh, it is the same methodology. And so uh, I, so I, I want to make that clear because I do have friends that are egalitarian, and um, I'm not suggesting that they will start one espousing. Day, yeah, one day all of a sudden say, come on in homosexuals and, and be our leaders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not suggesting that. and uh, But I do think that they probably... <laughs> I don't know that they've they've given it, and maybe they have, and I'm willing to give them. I'm willing to open the door for discussion with these people, but I, I'm concerned that they haven't thought through the methodology that they've employed to get to egalitarianism. And, right. um, you know, one of those, really, one of those methodologies, as as it's used in the New Testament, is called the socio-rhetorical method, and it can be used appropriately, but the problem is, is that when you approach the scripture. As though, you know, when Paul is saying, you know, uh, women should not exercise authority over a man, nor should they teach. And you're saying, oh, well, that was cultural because of the uh, cult of Artemis or the temple of Artemis that was in that area. And that that was the, the reason that they're saying these things. Well, you, you've, you've taken some very large leaps and you've assumed that maybe there was something cultural happening, but that Paul didn't mean that in some like plain common sense when we have very, like lots of other scriptures that kind of indicate that, yeah, he probably did mean that that way. Um, you know, like a good example I think would be if I was writing to my children saying, Hey, um, you know, avoid casinos at all costs. They're, they're, they're money pits and they're going to get you in trouble. And somebody like a hundred or 200 years from now reads the letter they wrote to my kids and they did some, you know, historical cross-referencing. They look at in my area and they find, well, there's this casino that was really well known for extorting people and ripping people off. And that was why Jeff wrote that to his kids. But uh, well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe the truth is, is that I wrote that because casinos are money pits and they should stay away from them, you know, or right. whatever. Now, I'm not saying that going to casinos is necessarily a sin. But what I am saying is that um, uh, it, it, you have to take some certain assumptions when approaching the text to arrive at these conclusions. And that's exactly what homosexuals, homosexual component, uh, proponents do when they say, okay, well, when Paul was writing against um, homosexuality, he wasn't writing against um, monogamous homosexuals. Right. He was writing against yeah. infidelity. He was writing against cult worship. He was writing against all these things. And they've, they've said that's what he was, it was those, and those things were happening during that time. So, Temple male so how prostitution, do we right? Temple male prostitution right. is one that they always go to. Yeah. Oh, there was a temple there where male prostitution was was uh, prevalent, and that's really what he's talking about. Or the, or pedophilia right. was was really uh, was really rampant in the Roman culture, and that's actually what he's talking about. So it's okay now, now that we have monogamous ho homosexual relationships in our time. All that that's all just cultural. It's the uh, to me, it's the it whether and I think I think what you said is right. We shouldn't try to lump all people who believe it because I have very good friends and brothers in the Lord who say, oh, yeah, 
you know, and brothers and sisters in the Lord who say, yeah, women should totally be elders. I'm not saying that what they've done is they've they've said, oh, well, yeah, you know, homosexuals should be able to be elders as well. What we're doing, what Jeff, what you and I are doing right now is we're seeing the end game for for both arguments. In other words, I'm not saying yeah. that one is is with the other. But the point that I think needs to be made is that if we take the cultural hermeneutic, that that hermeneutic of saying, oh, it was something in the culture that he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, Paul talks about this not just a little bit, time and time and time again, and not just in one letter. Yeah. Right? And and Peter talks about it, too. And so it's now all of a sudden you're having to explain away all these different cultural you know, backdrops to all these different things. That's just not the way that we're supposed to read scripture. I don't think keep going. I'm sorry. I, I, no, 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 you're, you're good, man. You jump in whenever. I don't mean, <laughs> this is your show. <laughs> you do what you want. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's where I, I, I can have concerns and it does seem to me that oftentimes this issue egalitarian is in many cases, a precursor to other very liberal theologies that end up creeping in to these denominations. So again, I think individuals can hold one and not the other, but at the but ultimately I think that if people are using the hermeneutic consistently, I think generations down the road or the next generation or whenever, time time enough time given enough time if they use that hermeneutic consistently, eventually it is going to open the door. You are opening the doorway for other theological positions that are in are very are just problematic you know and um so i think i think it is a it is something that i think my egalitarian brothers i think they really need to think about if they're able to apply that consistently um across the board but that's Ulti- just my ultimately the other problem is is that i think that the scriptures are pretty clear that I mean, this one of the things that I've done in, in my series is I've tried to pull back from the idea of, OK, let's stop. Let's stop focusing on women being elders, because I think that that's the end conversation. In other words, that's the conversation that needs to happen after the various roles that God has set up for men and women. In other words, you know, if we're going to talk about the the roles God has set up, we need to first talk about mm-hmm. men as husbands, men as leaders of their home men as leaders in general, and how many within the modern Christian church today, and throughout history for that matter, have really dropped the ball on this. In other words, we need to look first at men and one of the reasons that uh, that we're in the state that we're in. In fact, I saw uh, Paul Washer, uh, a video of Paul Washer last night. Somebody asked him what the biggest threat to the Christian church is in our modern time, and he said pastors. The pastors in the in the <laughs> Christian church is the biggest threat because they are not men who love the, the the word. They're not men who stand up. In other words, we're talking about, you know, biblical, what I see is biblical masculinity and <clears throat> not fulfilling that role. And that fir- the first part of that role is love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart mind, and, and strength, right? I mean, globbing on to yeah. the Lord in every possible sense. <clears throat> and having a true relationship with Christ is the very start of that masculine role. And so if we look at the Bible in general and just the roles that God has made, I think that the I, I, we everyone wants to go to that final that final discussion of can women be elders? And I think that that's because that's the most controversial one and it's the one that the church is the most split on right now in our current time, which has never been the case yeah. before. But ultimately, I think that uh, there's a whole slew of 
of conversation that needs to come before the idea of women as, as elders. Do you have anything to say about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you nailed it, man. I mean, I don't really have anything to add to that. I am or add to that. I am curious uh, what the chat's doing right now, though. I wish I could see the chat, but you can bring the chat up. I, I, you're not you're not Rob. Well, you can probably multitask the chat. In yeah, there. that's true. I, I the thing is, is I can bring it up, but then I bring up the video feed of myself, oh, and yeah. I'll just be like looking at being like, how do I look in this camera right now? You know, so like, <laughs> so like, I can't look at it, but like. Uh, but I am curious is like how the how what's happening in the so chat. I'd, actually, I'd like to know. Within the chat, everyone has pretty much uh, from what I can see, what I've read, everyone has pretty much agreed. Lee says it's the same line of thinking. They think we have to interpret the Bible according to the culture. A little eleven leavens the whole lump. Sean says I don't subscribe yep. to slippery slopes. It either is or it isn't. There are women preachers in churches that are clearly they will never endorse homosexuality. I agree with that. I'm not saying that they will. I agree with that too. I, yeah. I'm not saying they will endorse homosexuality. What I'm saying is, is look, the way that the Bible. Okay, let's let's. I'll be a little harsh for a few seconds and see how how this stirs the pot. Um, I don't. I think that the idea of calling a woman an elder is like calling a. It's calling it's calling something that the term does not apply to. The only thing that comes to mind is like the idea of saying homosexual marriage. Now, obviously, the two might not be the same, obviously. But the idea that we would call a homosexual union like that a marriage, I don't see that in the Bible. The Bible clearly puts forward that, that a marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, I believe that the Bible clearly puts forward that only a man can be an elder. So calling a woman an elder, that that's not a thing. According to the Bible, an elder is not a woman. So when someone in the Christian church says, oh, this, you know, elder, you know, Sarah or whatever, it's like does not compute according to the Bible, in my opinion. So, yeah, I agree with you that you might have elders, people call el women elders in their church, but that doesn't make it right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think one thing I, I actually think it's important. To, sorry, I did you have ahead. something nope, else I cut you going. off there? Go, go. Uh, something I think it's worth because I've been accused of this slippery slope fallacy before, and I'm I'm very familiarized with the fallacies and and how they're used. And one reason, one thing I want to point out why this isn't a slippery slope fallacy is because number one, I'm not saying that it's un that it's untrue because it could lead to homosexuality. That's not what's happening here. I think it's untrue because it's untrue. I think if you look at the actual merits of, of what the scripture is actually saying, you start actually breaking down the texts, the various texts uh, throughout the scriptures. I don't think it can, I don't think that it, the legs that it stands on are sturdy enough to bear the doctrine that it's trying to bear. But that said, so that that's one thing on its own. But I think additionally, um, the way that we come to the conclusions that we come to, and we're, we're, this is not about like this could happen, so so therefore this. It's saying how we the methodology we use is almost is as important as the conclusions we've come to. And so a great example of this. Let's just look at it something outside of biblical theology. Let's look at um, something like uh, I don't know. I, so like I I uh, sometimes raise birds. Okay, and. Uh, recently I had a, 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 a coyote take a couple of turkeys. All right. So let, let's just say it this way. If, if I build, build my coop a certain way to keep my birds in and the methodology I've used to build my coop, I keep getting predators that come in and start taking my chickens. I can't say, you can't say, well, that's a bad way to build a coop well, that, because 
you know, you know, we're going to have coyotes are going to come in and, and get the chickens. Um, what you're not saying is that it's bad. What, what you're essentially saying is there's a problem with the methodology that you're using because it's leading to this outcome that is not just unfavorable, it's untrue. Right. And so if you are doing something over and over and whether this be whether you're a mechanic, uh, whether you're raising animals or whatever, if the methodology you're using, you, you keep employing this method, but the cars aren't getting fixed, the animals keep dying. You have to look at the methodology and say, OK, I keep arriving at an, a methodology that I know is un, or a conclusion that I know is untrue. So maybe I need to look at the methodology that I'm using to get to my conclusions. And so I think that the methodology is, is that they're using is, is broken in and of itself. And it's, so it's not a matter of, uh, saying, well, if we let, um, if we let, uh, homosexuals get married, then all of a sudden they're going to want to, uh, have, we're going to let polygamy, polygamy is going to be open right. the door and all of this and that, which by the way did happen, but that's beside the point. Um, the, the, the point really is that, um, I'm not appealing to the possible future consequences to say that it's untrue. It's untrue because it's untrue. And the method methodology is what I'm critiquing. Right. Right. The, the, the methodology is in both instances leading you to two untrue conclusions. And so we need to look at the methodology, you know, and so that's where I would ask, this is for me, I'm, I'm morally really just using this as an analogy for, for my egalitarian brothers who think that it's true. I'm saying, okay, look, let's let's take egalitarianism off the table. Let's use your methodology and use it on something you don't agree with, right? Something you don't believe. Let's look at how they arrived and say, can we see similarities between these two things? It's again, I'm I'm it's more of an analogy to help build out the argument than it is me appealing to this to say, well, you know, this can't right. be true because, you right. know, you know, so. Okay. So, uh, we got a lot in the chat room. Lois says, I would like to see how we can get scripture to interpret scripture. What in the Tanakh informs this? How to, how do we make, uh, how, how do we carry over from the leadership of Israel to leadership in the assembly? Yeah. What's really surprising to me is that, um, this is not just something that's happening in the Christian, like the mainstream Christian world. This is happening in the Torah movement. The amount of, of yeah. teachers in the Torah movement that are uh, saying that women should be uh, elders and leaders is astounding to me. Uh, with that said, the it's clear that that uh, the leadership of Israel was that of men, not women. Uh, we see this in the priesthood. We see this in, um, I mean, kingship. We see this throughout. And actually, somebody brings up, uh, let's see here, where was this? Um uh, Sean says the father in the home can stop the daughter's vow and the husband can stop his wife's. It seems like the man is the authority in the home according to the law. I'd agree with that. Cecil asks, what about the judge Deborah? Yeah, I think that Deborah is uh, in the in the role of a prophet there. And uh, prophet clearly can be man, men or women, not only in the in the Torah and the Tanakh, but also in the apostolic scriptures. Um, what about women being deacons? Yeah, the Torah or the, uh, the apostolic scriptures are pretty clear that, that women can be deacons and it seems as though men and women yeah. serve in that role together. And there's multiple instances mm -hmm. of that. Uh, I think it was Phoebe. Yeah. Phoebe is never called an elder. There's, there's nowhere in scripture where a woman is called an elder. Um, yeah, I, 
can we rewind to Deborah for a second? Sure, go for it. Because I, I think that that that's the probably the most that person gets brought up more often because what I, I can already hear the rebuttal to what you just said when you said, well, she's a prophet. Well, somebody else is going to say, well, she was also a judge. Yeah. OK, that's going to be the response. Well, she was a judge. Well, here's what here's the problem you have with like just and I'm not saying that she wasn't a, a judge in some sense. But the, the issue that you have is that when it mentions that Deborah, it, when it refers to Deborah, number one, the the word judge isn't what people think of when they think of like somebody holding court. Like it's not a judicial kind of judge that we're looking at here. A judge in this particular book of the of the Bible is more like a national deliverer. They are sort of a savior. They're again a they're a national deliverer. They're they're delivering Israel. They weren't they weren't holding court. They weren't making judicial decisions decisions in that way. Now some translations. And there's some people that are already probably getting up in arms. Well, my Bible says it says she held court and because there are some translations that actually read that way. The problem is you have actually Daniel Block, who's uh, if you don't know who he is, he's a really great Old Testament scholar. Um, he actually writes an entire he has a, a, a commentary. I really recommend um, people go check it out. It's, it, it, he lays out a very uh, masterful argument about kind of the what Deborah was and what kind of. Uh, role that she functioned in. One of the things he says is she, the language used with regard to Deba, Deborah is not used with regard to any other judge that it actually has very specific phrases that pop out with the other judges that is not used of Deborah. So that's the first thing. It, it refers to them as God raising these other judges up. And it doesn't mention that about Deborah. It doesn't say he raised her up in that sense. So there's, there's a bit of a difference there. The second thing is that that word used for that she held court, uh, or it says that the people would, would come out to her, I think the words that are used to to have their, I'm trying to remember what the different translations say, but to basically have decisions made or to, to have court being held. Well, the, to settle disputes, I think is what some translations say. Uh, the problem you have is that that word throughout the book of Judges is not used with regard to holding court. It's used with that national deliverance. So you notice that that section of scripture happens right before the Israelites come out and then Deborah gives this word to uh, Barak to go and like create this, like to go and deliver the nation. So she was dictating to Barak the words of the Lord and Barak didn't believe the Lord. And then what was the, the moral of the story was that the victory would be taken from him and given to Yael. And that was a mark of shame. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was an exception. It wasn't a, well, the way God had designed it to be that, that it would be taken from him and given to Yael. The other thing that's important to mention is that the book of Hebrews lists national deliverers in uh, in the book of Hebrews. And it mentions Samson, it mentions Samuel, it mentions um, David, and it mentions Barak. It doesn't actually mention um, Deborah. So the, the theology of the uh, writer of Hebrews they held a kind of distinction that Barak was really the national deliverer that Barak, what he was intended to be, the national deliverer. And he was in some ways, right? He didn't get the final blow, like the high honor of, of striking the final blow. But he did go and eradicate the army enough so that yeah, that the uh, the leader of the army had to flee and then uh, Yael spiked him in the head, right? And so – he he was a national deliverer. He just because he was he was more reluctant. And he was a bit cowardly. God took that final honor of him being able to strike that final blow. So 
it, it scripture does seem to view that really what was happening was that Barak and Deborah were co-deliverers together. And again, it, it, this isn't to talk about elders even. This is kind of almost even outside the realm of what, what we're even referring to in the New Testament. But I thought that that's worth laying out because, again, it's a very common argument people make with regard to Deborah. And I just think it's, it, I think it, it, it's people that, and I'm not, I'm not making an accusation here, but I think it's like people just haven't looked at the text closely enough. They haven't cross-referenced it in enough places. And so we have this idea, well, Deborah's a prophet and a judge, ergo sh- women elders. And I just, I don't, you, you can't, you can't make that leap from one to the other. So. Agreed. Was I clear? Was yes. I clear there? Was you, I? You're good, man. You got it. All right. Uh, it's been a full show, believe it or not. Uh, we have oh, come wow. to the end of our time. I want to thank Jeff for coming on and uh, taking the place of Rob today. And actually, one of the reasons that uh, we didn't just skip a show is because next week I am taking the week off to build my office or at least try to build my office. And so we will not be having a show next week. Uh, and I apologize for that. We took a week off, I don't know, three weeks ago or something like that. And so normally we try not to stack up the weeks off, uh, that much, especially within one specific quarter, but, uh, we will be off next week. Uh, you can give us a call 253-465-3205. That's on our comment line. You can send email, cheguitorresource.com. And also don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and like this video. All right. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and the Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Why? Well, Amen. you know why. Because Messiah matters. <laughs>